Well, hey, Grace Fellowship, uh, glad to see you this morning uh, in person or online. We are in this series uh, called Thrive. We are looking at the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. So if you have a device or a Bible uh, and would like to uh, turn to D uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, we are going to cover, uh, there are 49 verses in uh, the second chapter. We're not, I'm not going to read all of the verses, but we are going to deal with the whole story in chapter 2. Before I get to that, uh, I want to talk about this current uh, cultural moment that we find ourselves in uh, today, and that, nothing specific. I mean, there's still lots going on that we can talk about uh, particularly, but I want to take a historical uh, look at what's been happening uh, in our culture over the last couple of decades. Anybody who's been around the church for a while uh, know that the attitude toward the church and through uh, people of faith, institutions of faith, the church itself has been shifting and uh, there are some things about that, but, uh, and it can be discouraging to watch that shift uh, if we don't keep our eyes on the mission uh, that we've been called to, because there's a lot of encouraging things going on around the globe. What's, what's exciting about the church is that how it's actually growing uh, in the world, and we wouldn't always see that uh, from our own cultural perspective. For instance, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there were around 600 million Christians uh, around the world, 600 million, and the majority of that number uh, would have been found in the Northern Hemisphere, where we, you know, in the West and in America and Europe. Uh, but over the last 100 years, that number has grown from 600 million to 2.2 billion. The growth of the church has actually outpaced the birth rate uh, globally. But uh, the vast majority of that number is now located in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa, South America, and in the East, China. The church is exploding in places uh, where uh, it's, it's declining in, you know, of course we're concerned because we live in the West. It's declining in the West, but it's exploding in other parts of the world. John Tyson uh, wrote a book uh, uh, entitled uh, Creative Minority, talking about Americans and our cultural moment when it comes to faith. And he mentions three shifts. I want to go through these uh, quickly because it sets up what we find um, in, in Daniel chapter 2. There is a shift. There has been a shift from the majority to the minority in our culture. I talked about this last week with the nuns, uh, the, the largest segment in our uh, society uh, who affiliate with no religious uh, group or system, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, whatever it is, no religion. A lot of people say that they're spiritual, but they don't connect that to any formalized or organized faith system. And on top of that, uh, even though two thirds of Americans uh, still identify as Christian, only 25% of us actually uh, believe uh, that the Bible is the literal word of God. So that uh, we, are, we are quickly shifting to the minority in our culture. The here, second shift, from the center to the fringe. Uh, we used to be at the center of culture, and now we're being pushed out to the sides. Uh, for instance, 200 years ago, if you wanted to be a pastor, uh, you could go to schools like Harvard or Princeton or Yale. Heard of those schools? Now, if you want to give up your faith, you, know, you, you end up in places like that. Uh, Princeton and Yale and, and Harvard, those are all schools, uh, William and Mary, all those schools, Ivy League schools, were founded on the gospel and uh, their purpose was to prepare believers to go out and influence their world. 
That has now shifted. I mean, if you, pl- if you pray in a public school, you can get yourself in trouble. There's a sentiment in our culture today that says if you're a person of faith, that skews your ability. I mean, you should, you should be barred from, uh, from public service if you're, if you're a Christian because you have a worldview that's not consistent with, with current uh, culture. So that has shifted. And it leads to the third shift from respected uh, to ridiculed. From respected to ridiculed. 50 years ago, you may not go to church uh, but you tried not to swear when the pastor showed up, you know, that kind of sort of thing. Um, but now you're, uh, you're the bigot in the movie. You're the weirdo in the sitcom. You're the person that nobody wants to be, you know, the, the, the trend over the last several decades uh, has shifted from respected to actually ridiculed. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. Is this over? Are we doomed as a church? Of course not. This is why we look at stories like Daniel. Daniel is the perfect argument for hope uh, in the gospel. One of the benefits of studying stories like Daniel is discovering that, you know, circumstances, things, you know, have not changed. We are not alone. We have been here before. Uh, the, the true believers, true believers have always been been exiles. We have always been exiles in our culture. And we need to realize that our culture today is just simply making our identity more and more clear and our mission more and more compelling. You know, the darker our world, the brighter our light. And Daniel is teaching us that uh, from his story. He's teaching us how not just to survive this culture, just not to get through it, but how to thrive and actually how to extend, extend the kingdom of God in our own cultural Moment. So we started this last week. We learned last week that one of the secrets to Daniel's thriving uh, was embracing the culture, uh, excuse me, embracing the calling uh, that God put on his life in the culture that God placed him. A young teenager ripped from his home, controlled and abused uh, by a, in a foreign land. And he has resolved... Uh, last week, we, we, heard, we saw uh, that he resolved to stay true to his calling. Daniel distinguished himself with character and competence. We learned last week that Daniel got himself noticed by the king because he resolved. He resolved what he could not say yes to and what he would say yes to. What he had to say no to, but what he could say yes to. Daniel lived with integrity and excellence. Proverbs 22 says, do you see people skilled in their work? They will work for kings and not for ordinary people. How do you thrive in a difficult culture? How do, you, how do you thrive in a difficult work environment? How do you thrive in a situation where people are not respecting you, actually ridiculing you for your faith? Well, Daniel teaches us, taught us last week, do your job. Just do your job. Live with integrity and competence. Live with character and excellence. Proverbs says, if you do your job, you're going to get noticed for your character and your competence. And this is exactly what we find in Daniel chapter 2. So if you have uh, that open in front of you, uh, I'm going to skip a lot of verses, but you can scan that as I tell the story. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not Sleep. So the king has a dream. He has a troubling dream. He is troubled by his dream. Have you ever been troubled by a dream? 
Yeah, most all of us have. Uh, dreams can be troubling because dreams are weird, right? Dreams are really bizarre. And they, you know, sometimes they wake you up and sometimes they keep you up because dream, dreams can be troubling. And so the king has this dream that troubles him. He is troubled. Remember in the New Testament where Herod, uh, King Herod was troubled by the birth of Jesus. Remember that? And it's, the Bible says that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem. Now, why would, why would all of Jerusalem be troubled? Simply because Herod was troubled. Well, maybe you've heard the phrase, happy wife, happy life. You know, when, when Herod was troubled, you got out of the way. <laughs> when Herod was, a, was in a bad mood, you ran for cover. Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by his dream, and that troubled everyone else. Verse 2, so the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, friends, these are the people that Daniel would have been trained with. He went to school with all of the enchanters and all of the astrologers. He was trained in the literature and language of the Babylonians. So he's a part of this group. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And so here's the story. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It's keeping him up. And so he calls all of his wise guys in to, to, and instead of telling them what his dream was so they can interpret the dream, he says, you know what? You tell me the dream that I had and then you tell me what that dream means. Now, we don't, the text doesn't say, could, did Nebuchadnezzar forget his dream? How many of you have forgotten your dream? You know, you've been troubled by it, but you, you don't remember the details of the dream. So that could have been, or it could have been and, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is just testing his counselors. You, you tell me the dream. And they're all looking around at each other and, and they, they, they we can't we can't do that. You tell, you, tell us, you tell us the dream and we can tell you what the dream means, but Nebuchadnezzar, says, no, he says, no, no, you tell me the dream before you tell me what the dream means. Otherwise you're gone. And by gone, I mean dead. He was going to kill everybody, including Daniel and his friends, if they did not tell him his dream. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Wisdom and tact. Say that with me. Wisdom and tact. Do you know somebody in your life that could use more wisdom and tact? Don't look at them right now. Just keep focused on me, okay? He asked the king, verse 15, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree. Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for more time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Wisdom and tact. What is tact? Well, wisdom is knowledge applied. It's knowing and knowing how to apply what you know. Uh, tact is how to communicate that. The ability to be tasteful when the truth is not tasteful. You know, it's the ability not to be offensive when what you have to say can be offensive. It's basically speaking the truth in love. 
We'll unpack that in a moment. Let's go on. Daniel makes an appointment with the king. He buys some time for everybody in verse 17. He goes back to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, if you've ever prayed, you need to pray now. And so they all join together and pray. They start to pray about this. Now, Philippians chapter four, Paul tells us to pray with thanksgiving. This is exactly what they do. They make their request and they express their thanks at the same time. They know that God is hearing them. They know that God is going to respond to them. And so they're thanking God in advance for what God, whatever God chooses to do. And this is exactly what we see in the text. In verse 20, Daniel starts to praise God in advance for the answer uh, that God is going to give them. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So they're all praying. They're all thanking God in advance. And then Daniel goes back to work. Verse 24, Daniel goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he says to Arioch, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Don't, don't, don't kill him, Ariok. Don't kill him. Take me. Take me to the king, and I will interpret this dream for him. So Daniel is intervening. He's standing before Ariok. He's standing before the king, and he's saying to the king, tell me the dream. And the king says, you, you tell me the dream, and you tell me what it means. And Daniel says, no, I can't do that. Well, this is exactly what the king was, was out. I mean, he, but Daniel says, you know what? I serve a God who can. I, I can't do it, but God can. And so Daniel starts to lay out his dream. We find his dream in verse 31. It says, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces. The statue came down, became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. I'm going to put an image on this, uh, on the screen. Uh, you can Google this uh, and get all kinds of different pictures, but I thought this was a pretty good one. Um, the statue, the dream of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, let me stop here for, for just a second because I know that a lot of you, some of you uh, are really into biblical prophecy and you like 
talking about end times and, you know, uh, what's going to happen when the, when the world comes to an end. Uh, what Revelation is to the New Testament, Daniel is to the Old Testament. There's tons of prophecy in the book of Daniel. I get, I get asked to preach about Revelation a lot. Why don't you speak about Revelation? And I've done that. I've, I did a series in Revelation. Uh, it was... It was good, but, and especially with the way the world is in our current cultural moment, I have seen a lot of this, you know, are we in the end times? Is this what's going to happen when the world ends? Is coronavirus, you know, being used by God, whatever. Okay. Now the thing, the challenge about that, uh, friends, is for the past 2000 years, when Jesus promised that he would return, uh, every couple of decades since then, uh, we have reinterpreted uh, Revelation and the end times teaching because our current cultural conditions have changed. We as human beings tend to look at biblical prophecy through our own cultural moment. And I'll just give you an example of this. Uh, this statue has feet of clay. Uh, uh, and this is where the phrase feet of clay actually come from. So question, how many toes are on two feet? This is not a trick question. Just holler it out. How many toes are on two feet? Normally, normally you have 10 toes on two feet. Now, here's the thing. 30 years ago, uh, back in the early 90s, uh, a well-known preacher, and if I mentioned his name, some of you would be familiar with him, uh, he was, he was preaching uh, about end times, and he said that the feet of this statue represented the European Union, which uh, in the 70s was, was starting to be formed. And uh, they were, it, the European Union was being looked at uh, as, a, as a way to form, to create a one world government uh, to, con to control the globe. Okay, And so a lot of people looked at the European Union as, as a piece of fulfilling uh, biblical prospects. Uh, prophecy. Uh, and why was that? Because uh, the European Union had 10 toes. Uh, the European Union had 10 members. Uh, now, let's fast forward 30 years to our current day. Uh, the problem with that interpretation, of course, now is that the European Union has 27 members. It's a lot of toes. Okay, um, and if you've kept up with it, it's not doing all that well on the global stage. Not that it couldn't happen, but right now it just doesn't seem like the European Union has a lot of global clout to control all of us. Okay, so what's my, what's my point? Friends, I can summarize the entire book of Revelation, the entire biblical teaching on, on uh, the ending of the world, in two sentences, and if you want to know that, you write this down, friends. This is all of Revelation in two sentences. Number one, Jesus is coming back. I need to be ready. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. I need to be ready. Okay? Now, it's critical. Let me say this. It's critical that we study the Bible and understand as much as we can about current events. But, friends, the bottom line is the what and the how and the who and the where of prophecy is always secondary uh, to following Jesus and longing for his appearing because we know that one day he will return and we just need to be ready for that. Now back to this statue, most scholars recognize the dream in Daniel chapter two, uh, the vision that God had given Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the vision that he's now giving Daniel as referring to human history 
from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar coming down to the establishment of the first century church, the gospel, when Jesus comes, okay? So let's go back to the statue. Four sections illustrated by four different substances, okay, referring to four different empires of human history. Uh, Daniel says Babylon, and he, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're the head of gold. Right now, you're it. You are large and in charge. But Nebuchadnezzar, you need to realize that your kingdom will not, will not last. It is not forever. At some point, and he doesn't say this because Daniel doesn't know, but history tells us that eventually the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire of silver, is going to come in and take away Babylon. And they are going to dominate the world stage at, at a period of time. And then after them, the Greeks are going to come in and dominate the world. And then finally, the Roman Empire is going to take over everybody. Four sections of this statue, four empires ruling human history until a rock. Now, how much is a rock worth compared to gold and silver and bronze and iron? A simple rock is going to bring this entire thing down. A rock. What is the rock? Or better, who is the rock? Who's the rock? Friends, the rock is the stone that builders rejected. The rock, Psalm 118, the rock, uh, whoever falls on this rock will be shattered. He is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. He is the rock. He is my rock and my fortress. He is the rock of my salvation. You know who he is? He is the chief cornerstone. He is the rock from which an eternal mountain grows that cannot be shaken and cannot be removed. This is Daniel's message to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's very clear from Daniel's vision. It's an interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar did not want to hear, but that he could not deny. Daniel showed him the dream and it caused Nebuchadnezzar to fall to his knees. Now here's the king, the greatest ruler of the world at this point. And now he's exalting Daniel to the highest position. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Verse 48, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. There was no one higher than Daniel and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, verse 49, at Daniel's request, the king appointed his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators of the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So let's go back to verse 14. Daniel replied, when all of this happened, when everyone was in a period of chaos and crisis, Daniel replied with wisdom intact. How do you follow Jesus in a world that does not follow Jesus and is increasingly hostile toward Jesus and those who follow him? Here's what I think is critical to see in Daniel and for us to think about when we are faced in situations where we are you know, being rejected or resisted or where we're at, outright opposed or ridiculed. Daniel never viewed Nebuchadnezzar as the enemy. He never saw Nebuchadnezzar as his chief opposition, as someone he needed to defeat 
or win over. If if we could back up to Jeremiah chapter 29, we've looked at that chapter a couple of times where he writes a letter to Daniel and all of the people in exile to seek the prosperity, to seek the well-being of the city. This city that has captured you, this city that has imprisoned you, this city that hates you for your faith, this city that is oppressing you and mistreating you, you need to realize that your current situation, your current cultural uh, challenge, that your struggle is not with flesh and blood. As you are exiles in this foreign land, you need to realize that the people in this land are also captives. They are captives to their own spiritual blindness. They are living in their own domain, uh, domain of darkness. And so your job as salt and light is not to destroy them. They're not your enemy. Your job is to do whatever you can to lead them out into the light of freedom and hope to transfer them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, that's hard to do, right? <laughs> that's, that's our current cultural challenge. Uh, when people are making fun of you at work or at school, when you're getting passed over for opportunities because of your faith, when people are ridiculing you, outright opposing you, when Facebook is censoring posts and Twitter is deleting accounts, uh, when the government is making policy that's, that's harder and harder for us to exercise our freedom of religion, it can be very daunting. It can be very discouraging. But, and friends, this is why Daniel is such a powerful lesson. Daniel knew how to respond with wisdom and tact. He knew how to de-escalate a volatile situation. He knew how to handle emotionally out of control egomaniacs bent on using power to destroy others. He did not return anger for anger. He did not uh, respond in kind. His words were full of wisdom and tact, measured and careful, full of grace and truth, seasoned with salt. And as a result, friends, his words literally, what he said and how he was able to say it, saved lives. Friends, only those controlled by the Spirit of God can bless when they are being cursed, can love when they are being hated, can forgive when they're being mistreated. This is how you thrive. You refuse to treat people the way treat, people treat you. It's the way of Jesus. It's the kingdom secret. It is the character of Daniel. Let's look at four character qualities that made Daniel thrive in this particular situation. The first one is questions. We notice in Daniel's life, three times in two chapters, Daniel poses questions. He understood the power of questions. He just asked a question in chapter two. Uh, Ariok, tell me, why, can you tell me why the king issued such a harsh Decree? I mean, what's, what's going on? What's, what's happening? Why, why are we in this particular spot? Why are we dealing with this? Daniel sought to understand before he decided to respond. Let me just ask you, have you ever, have you ever gotten yourself in trouble or made matters worse because you didn't stop long enough to ask a question? You, started, you just kind of spouted your opinion before you understood the other side, the other, the other side of the... Can anyone say marriage? I, you know, do you, do you, have you ever gotten yourself in trouble simply because you didn't take time to understand the other person? Some of my biggest, maybe all of my, big, all of my relational blunders can be traced back to this single principle. Seek to, be, seek, to understood before you're un, uh, seek to understand before you're understood. To ask a question, to see where the other person is. I mean, think about this. Have you ever said to someone, I don't understand how you could ever think that? 
In our current cultural climate, people have said, I, I, have no, I cannot understand how they could ever vote for that person. How could they ever think that? How could they ever you know, hold to that view? I don't understand how you could ever think. Well, aren't you answering your own question? Yeah, you don't understand. So maybe you should ask a question. Would it do well for your relationship to just, instead of spouting off your opinion about that person, to kind of figure out where that person's coming from? Daniel thought it was a good idea. Jesus asked more questions than he gave answers. Before Daniel chose to respond, he chose to listen and to understand. He asked questions. Here's the second characteristic that we find in Daniel, restraint. Daniel, Daniel did not panic. He did not run for cover. He did not organize a rebellion. He did not draw a sword. He did not make Nebuchadnezzar his enemy. He, he's dealing with a person who's just simply out of control. Nebuchadnezzar is irrational. Nebuchadnezzar is so filled with, with fear and anger that he's willing to do anything. He's willing to kill anybody to make himself feel better. And in the midst of this emotional flare-up, Daniel stays cool. He keeps his calm. He's self-controlled. What's the difference between responding and reacting? Responding to a situation rather than reacting to a situation. Two things, time and wisdom. Time and wisdom. Daniel took time to ask questions. He took time to understand the situation. He took time to formulate the best response possible. And during that time, here's the third characteristic, he prayed. Before Daniel did anything, he prayed. James chapter 1 says, if you lack wisdom, pray, ask God. Daniel prayed. He chose prayer over panic. He, pray, he prayed with thanksgiving. He prayed knowing God would act. He prayed in community with his, with his group. Uh, he, he realized that wise people need wise people. He's, wise people know that they don't have all of the wisdom. And so Daniel solicited his prayer partners to join him in this fight. Let me tell you, there's, there's two things that prayer will do for you in any kind of crisis situation. When you're praying about anything, the first thing that prayer will do for you is to get your own heart and mind right. It will calm you down. It will put you in a better frame of mind. Just talking to God about what's going on and what you have to respond to, it puts you in a different frame of mind and heart. And here's the second thing it will do. It will release what is not yours. It will put God back on the throne, acknowledge his sovereignty and power. It, it takes you out. You're not in charge of the outcome. And so God, uh, God prepares you through prayer to do what he is asking you to do and then releasing you from doing what only he can do. Daniel prays. And here's the fourth characteristic in Daniel, compassion, compassion. He goes to Arioch, the guy in charge uh, to kill everybody. And he says to Arioch, don't kill him. Eric, hold off for a second. Just, just you don't need to kill them. Now I want to remind you here, uh, He's talking about the very people who don't like him, who hate him, who are jealous of him. Uh, these are the people next week who are going to put his three friends in a furnace. Uh, in a couple of more chapters, these, these are the same men who are going to throw him to the lions. And he's interceding for them. He's intervening for his enemies. He's, he's literally saving their lives by telling Ariok, don't kill him. Why is he doing that, friends? Because he's seeking the prosperity of the city. He's making peace. 
He says to Nebuchadnezzar, don't kill him. I'll, I'll step in. I'll take the risk. I'll pay the price for the peace. Friends, how do you thrive in a world of fear and anger and darkness and conflict? You lay down your life just like Jesus did. You seek to make peace where peace can be found. Romans chapter 12 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. They're not your enemy. This is not your fight. You are a follower of Jesus who laid down his life to make, not a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker to establish reconciliation. Whatever kingdom you think you're building in this life will, will not last. Jesus is the rock of your salvation. And so friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know this. Whatever kingdom you think you're building will not last. Jesus is the rock that offers you eternal life. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you, I want you to think about this. It's, it, where is God calling you to be a peace, to, to lay down your life, your own anger, your own frustration, your own fear, your own, you know, push to, for revenge or retaliation or to enter into a conflict that cannot be resolved with frustration and anger. We're gonna celebrate communion together. If you wanna get that ready uh, in just a second, we're, we're gonna remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. But I wanna go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, as far as it depends on you to live at peace with everyone, friends, this is the gospel. This is, Jesus, Jesus went to his father and he said, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Now they're sinners. They deserve to be killed. But I'll step in. I'll, t- I'll pay the price so that there can be peace between you and those that you love. Let me read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's share the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's share the cup together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful. We are overwhelmed. We, there is not enough thanks to express how you stepped in to save us, to establish peace between us and your Father. But Father, we come to this moment to celebrate that act, how you laid down your life for us and how you're calling us to lay down our lives. For those who are in darkness, for those who are controlled by their fear and their anger and by their will, their, their desire to build their own kingdom. Father, may we allow the rock of our salvation to destroy anything that we would want to build for ourselves and to celebrate your sacrifice on our behalf. To that end, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.